Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Boston Red Sox legend David Ortiz is now a Hall of Famer, cementing the legacy of Latinos in Major League Baseball. Plus, a new Latino media startup plans to buy 18 right-leaning Spanish-speaking radio stations, a potential media transformation that's riled up conservative lawmakers. And Black and Latino teachers will collect $835 million over a New York discrimination lawsuit. That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, if you're from New England, chances are you've eaten a Necco candy wafer. I love Necco wafers, and the licorice ones are my favorite. I don't care what anybody says. The iconic candy company recently closed, but its legacy lives on. Author Darlene Lacey documents its colorful history in her latest book, Necco, an epic candy tale. But first, joining me now, Julio Ricardo Varela, president of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, founder of Latino Rebels, and an MSNBC opinion columnist. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. So glad to have you. Also with me, Tibasai Seya, public radio reporter at GBH and PRX's The World. Hello, Tibasai. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> I'm so glad to have both of you. Let's jump right in with First Lady Jill Biden's big gaffe earlier <laughs> this month. And uh, yeah. first, let's take a listen. Um, she was uh, uh, making an appearance uh, in San Antonio, and she apologized this uh, afterwards for comments she made in an event comparing members of the Latino community to traditional food. Here was her initial comment with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. <laughs> okay, clearly her people put that together, but woo, that landed with a thud. Um, Tibasai, you wanna go at that first? <laughs> yeah, you know, when I first knew about these comments, I thought, you know, they're kind of absurd. I mean, the Latino community is that is as unique as breakfast tacos. I mean, what was she even trying to say? To me, that comment doesn't even make any sense. And, you know, and I agree, this is the, the consequences of a big misunderstanding of the complexity and diversity of the Latino community. But let me tell you something, as a Latina immigrant, I've heard worse things for sure. Plus she already apologized. So I think at this point, I'm not angry about the first lady comparing me to breakfast tacos. 
I'm more upset, you know, that Democrats, for example, I feel like they hasn't pushed hard enough for economic and social policies that Latinos, we have said clearly we care about. Mm -hmm. Julio. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those gaffes that was, it was cringeworthy, right? And And I don't think people like to be compared to food. You know, I'm just being honest. I mean, and, and also the fact, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, uh, grew up in San Juan in the Bronx, and y you can't say bodega yeah, that in was 2022. Kinda... So yeah. there's a lot about her comms team. like, And there's also a part of me that's like, there's no one on your staff that would give this a check? You know, it, even if it was like more diverse, as diverse as Mexican-Americans in the Southwest or Puerto Ricans in the Northeast or Cubans in Florida or, you know, Salvador, Salvadorans in, in Los Angeles, no one would be complaining about that. Right. But like I wrote um, in my MSNBC column when it came out in the middle of July, the reaction from conservative media and conservative voices, given what Tibisai <laughs> just said, given the comments that maybe a president trump has said in the past it's such a manufactured political outrage that it's almost hypocritical and not say almost it is hypocritical because when you have a candidate like donald trump essentially equating mexicans to rapists that was those those were his opening that that was the tagline that set up his candidacy in 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 the summer of 2015 and I didn't see a lot of conservative Latinos being outraged, mm -hmm. right? And now, fast forward to First Lady Biden, this is just political. Like, this is exactly just another little jab that shows that, like what Tibisai said, is that Democrats still don't get us as a community, and you're not even making the effort, and granted, she did apologize, and and I think it's just playing into this notion of frustration and disconnect that the Democratic Party in general has with the Latino community in 2022. And Republicans know that because mm. Republicans know that these votes, especially in the midterms in places like South Texas, for example, are up for grabs. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I, I would like to add that I think learning how to communicate in a multicultural America it's a challenging lesson, but we but it's a lesson we have to learn. And right. it works both ways. Right. You learn the dominant culture and you learn the other cultures as well. That's like the ideal, but it rarely works that way because the dominant Anglo culture is so powerful that it becomes like a default channel of communication. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a lesson we need to learn as a country, uh, how to bridge that gap. So true. Well, let's move on to the Puerto Rican Status Act, which, you know, we've discussed around and around and around and around on this show. The reason I'm bringing it up now is because there apparently is some pressure on Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to support it. And I hear she is speaking during a town hall meeting earlier this month about her trip to Puerto Rico. In the present legal situation, Puerto Rico does not have a voting member in Congress. They have a, a non-voting representative, but the fact of the matter is, is that there are only a couple of Puerto Rican members of Congress uh, that actually can vote. And 
uh, and also represent very heavily Puerto Rican populations. And so um, in the spirit of that, myself and Nidia Velasquez, we went to Puerto Rico last month to address the Puerto Rico Status Determination Act and um, start to collect and hear from people on the island on what needs to be done in order for us to have a respected democratic process of self-determination. Okay, so should to the two of you, should she be pressured to support the act um, or is this just more yeah, ongoing um, controversy? Well, I, I, let me just jump in because we we can update this story uh, and it, it just happened uh, this past week, Callie. The Puerto Rico Status Act, which would essentially give, Puerto, if passed, would give Puerto Ricans three options, you know, statehood, uh, independence, or free association, which is like Palau, I, you know, just Google that, free association. I'm not going to get into the details. Um, and they're, they have been debated. They, it passed to committee. It, it passed through the Natural Resources Committee in the House, and it was about to go on the floor of the House. There was an expectation that the vote would be happening this past week. Representative Ocasio-Cortez backed out for whatever reason, because there was talk, critics were saying that it wasn't transparent enough, there needed to be more hearings, the legislation wasn't in Spanish, a lot of reasons. But now that vote has been delayed till September, and you know there are indications that this bill will never see the House floor. Mm -hmm. So to me, as a Puerto Rican and as someone who has been covering this issue, I mean, this is, you know, this is my issue, right? As a journalist, I've, this is the first issue I've been covering, uh, the first issue I, I, I've covered, right? When I started blogging and tweeting whatever I did in the aughts, the, it's a lost opportunity in the sense that it was a real substantial compromise bill amongst pro-statehooders and, and other people that weren't for statehood. And I think you lose some of the power of Puerto Ricans being able to say, oh, wow, people voted on it on the House. And maybe it could have passed and it could have gone to the Senate. It might have not passed the Senate, but at least it was a victory. Now it appears that this bill is going nowhere. And it just, you know, since 1898, once a colony, always a colony. Mm. And, you know, the United States, for people that don't know, that's when they invaded Puerto Rico. And now it's 2022, and and you can you can say what you want about Puerto Rico. It's a colony of the United States. Yeah, and and the fact that the United States still has a colonial possession in 2022 is just mind-boggling. And I think it. And the last thing I'll say before um, Tipasai jumps in is that I don't necessarily think that political power amongst Puerto Ricans in the mainland has actually been respected. So it's a lot. I, as a Puerto Rican person um, and journalist, feel like it still needs to be pushed. Um, but I do think it, it was a lost opportunity for, for people that were supporting this bill. Mm. What do you say, Tivisa? Yeah, you know, I was looking forward to this conversation because I wanted to learn more about this bill and this topic. And, and I know Julio is the one um, to explain many things. And, and I have a question. So I understand there has been a number of referendums about the status of Puerto Rico. Is this something different? Yeah, it, it would be binding. So the difference of all the 
all the referendums and plebiscites before, and people can look at the history or, you know, just go to latinorebels.com, enter Puerto Rico, and you can see all the history of the plebiscites. But this would have been a binding resolution so that if the people of Puerto Rico would have voted, it would then be enacted in Congress. So if, if, if Puerto Ricans decided, well, you know, we want statehood, then the statehood admission would happen. If they would want independence, then that would begin to happen. And that gets complicated with U.S. citizenship. But it was bringing up issues of does our U.S. citizenship as Puerto Ricans, do we have value in that? Is there value of that for us? So that's it's I, I just thought it was a good opportunity, but it's mm. kind of been lost in local political, you know, bickering. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our Latinx roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Tibisai Seya of the World. Now, let's talk about this media deal that has everybody all whipped up. First, here's Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez speaking about the sale of iconic conservative radio stations, Radio Mambi and WQBA, to liberal-leaning Latino media group. What we will not stand for is an attempt to control the narrative to silence conservative viewpoints because it doesn't fit with an overall agenda that is, in my opinion, very damaging to this country led by George Soros. Okay, so... You know, multimillionaire George Soros, who is liberal, is being uh, accused of being the behind the scenes um, purchaser of this huge group of radio stations, Spanish speaking, we should say, that have traditionally leaned quite conservative, really important culturally uh, in the Cuban community in Florida. Um, And um, now if it's purchased by a group that is liberal leaning, the fear from the folks that have enjoyed um, the politics of the station in the past, that they will change those politics and suddenly they will lose the uh, conservative perspective uh, that is often aired on those stations. What say you, Julio, about this purchase and about whether or not you think that'll happen? I also wrote about this this summer. um, And I thought it was really smart of these uh, Democratic strategists who had ties to the Clinton and Obama White House and the campaigns that in order to inform the community, you kind of have to go, (laughs) go own the means of distribution and that's radio. And one specific example was the conservative Radio Mambi in Miami that was known for disinformation and conspiracy theories and is very right wing. And last time I checked Callie, this is capitalism. If a radio station, if Univision wants to sell radio stations and there's a buyer, they bought it. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, the reaction in the since the post-purchase, and it still hasn't been approved. I mean, it has to go through the standard, you know, FCC and all that. But it was a small vocal minority of people. And in the end, this group, like, bought the radio stations. And you would think conservatives would understand that, you know, capitalism... It's capitalism. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think they expected it, Tibisai. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think this is a very interesting move. Um, you know, Spanish media, especially ethnic media, has been struggling to survive for many years here in the US, despite, you know, rampant misinformation in Spanish language. We saw that, uh, we saw how tragic that was during the pandemic. And I mean, uh, aside from political ideologies, I really hope this will be a good way to inform Latinos. Um, I understand radio is the medium that has the highest weekly reach among Hispanics um, in the US, according to re uh, recent research. And also, you know, the US has the world's second largest population of Spanish speakers just behind Mexico. Yet, as I said before, you find a lot of misinformation in Spanish and poor access to reliable content. So I really hope that, you know, with all this money, they will actually do a good thing for the Latino community. They will do good journalism. We need it. And it won't get lost in this political, um, ideological debate. Mm. Yeah. And, and Kelly, you know, going in eyes wide open, I mean, you do have people with ties to the Democrats owning radio stations. Not all of them will be, you know, political talk show radio stations. Um, those are issues that at least the 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 group that bought the station told me that, no, oh, no, we're not going to do that. But, you know, I can understand if there are concerns that you might be getting, you know, democratic messaging through the airwaves and you're not really doing the community a, a service, just like maybe Radio Mambi was not doing the community a service previously. So I, I do think we are nowhere near the apex of how media serves the Latino community in the United States, and we're all still trying to figure it out. And so I do welcome new capital into this. I still have questions about, is this the Democratic Party in sheep's clothing? And, and are they just using this because it, it was... The, the rise of right-wing Latino media has actually been very effective and very well-funded, and they couldn't stop it, so they just said, let's just buy it out, right? So that strategy is one way to do it, and you can tell from the reaction of that purchase from the conservatives in, in the Latino media space that they now they're talking about censorship and silencing people and all that, and I'm like... So the table's turned, right? The table's turned and now you're feeling it. But like I said, you know, they had $80 million and you didn't. <laughs> they bought them. Mm -hmm. Let me jump to the story in New York City, which I'm just mentioning because, as we know here in the greater Boston area, the majority of students in public schools are Latino. And this was a case that didn't have to do with the students but the teachers this has been an ongoing lawsuit, I guess, since 1995. A lot of a Black and Latino former teachers in New York City were demoted or fired. And they have been fighting a discrimination lawsuit that said that the licensing test for teachers was biased. So um, they finally won. And um, it's a $1.1 million judgment. And so far, $835 million have been awarded to more than half of the group. That, I thought, this is a significant story. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a Wall Street Journal uh, article. It's what you talked about, that they stand, you know, thousands, and, and the lead says, you know, thousands of black and Latino former teachers in New York City 
they stand to collect more than one billion, right? One billion dollars. Um, about this point. decades, yes. yeah, this yes. decades long, right? So this is so this gets to you know I think we've talked about this in the past, you know, as to, this is about representation and education and licensing tests and cultural biases and a lot of the things that um, have been raised in the last couple of years since you know George Floyd's murder about how the system has denied opportunities for communities of color. And this is a perfect example of systemic um, discrimination in what is, supposed, what is supposedly a progressive city and when it comes to public education, right? And especially when you look at the numbers of, you know, who are the public school students, Cali, that yes. are in, you know, That's the majority, right? right? And, I mean, even in Boston, right? We, we understand that, you know, Boston public schools, you know, if you... You know, more than half of it, I believe it's like more than half now or near half or Latino. Right. Or, or, and then you add black students and and now you have a a non-white district. So it does come down to. How public how public education over the over the decades has been tinged, not tinged, but it's another example of white supremacy in a lot of ways. And so this is a great historic win uh, because at least there's you know awarding of of damages here but i also think about like all these teachers that got discriminated and the the actual people that we wanted in front of these kids they're no longer teaching there they're former teachers so what did they get disillusioned did they you know what i mean it's like yeah because of this situation so you talk about putting black and latino teachers in front of the kids to reflect the district and then when we do it we're still discriminating against them that's not going to work in any situation Callie. yeah um i just want to point out that this is a a scenario in which these teachers were saying this is actually happening and folks kept denying that it was actually happening so of course you know many times you know people step forward um they're punished for it of course and you know, they're not believed and it just becomes a thing. But anyway, they they are at least uh, some, you know, many of them who have been in this case for a long time are now um, getting some compensation. I want to switch over to uh, cultural stories. We have a few I love you all to respond to. First of all, David Ortiz. <laughs> Big Pape. There he is. Um, and it's more than just his going into the Hall of Fame, Boston Red mm-hmm. Sox baseball player. He represents a, a Latino legacy in baseball. Um, what do you all think? Well, all I can say is my Dominican friends are extremely happy about this. <laughs> it, it was just, they couldn't believe it, you know. Um, and it is an important milestone, not only for Dominicans, or, but for Latinos and for mm-hmm. Latino players, especially. And, you know, let me be clear, the Dominican Republic has a long history of producing some of the best baseball players in the world. But Big Papi is only the fourth Dominican to be elected to the whole thing. So, uh, you know, Latino players, they make up nearly 30% of all major league players. Yeah. So this is huge. That is amazing. Yeah. There's so many. I I have the feels, as they say, because... Mm -hmm. You know, to me, having been in the Boston area, and I actually converted from a Yankee fan to a Red Sox fan. 
Mm -hmm. uh, just Google the Bronx Judas. I'm not going to explain why, but one of the reasons (laughs) was one of the biggest reasons that the Dominican and Latino players like, you know, like someone like Nomar Garcia Parra, um, who is, you know, Mexican-American descent, um, Pedro Martinez. I mean, I was I was here. Right. I was I was a young professional seeing Pedro take over the city. And then this one, number 34, comes along and perhaps gives me and so many other people in New England so much joy uh, in 2004 that led to, you know, more World Series. So to me, there's two things that Big Poppy, I will always, always, um, he has a special place in my heart. I have 34 jerseys. That's all I wear to Fenway Park, even when they're not <laughs> playing well this year, Cali. Um, but the one good thing about Big Poppy is that he made it cool for people to call me Poppy. So my mm-hmm. kids call me Poppy, but the, but then the friends of my kids started saying, <laughs> oh, Poppy, that's daddy. That's like Big Poppy. And I'm like, so that so that to me is like how he became bigger than baseball in New England, okay. right, number one. And number two, I mean, he gives a speech and he breaks it in Spanish to his Dominican, like he shouts out the Dominican Republic, and then he comes into English, and then he goes to Fenway Park. Uh, it's just, he transcends everything. And I, I will run his mayoral campaign, Cal, okay. if you call me, for <laughs> right. Boston. Yeah, it was so powerful. I agree. All right. Well, that's wonderful. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futura Media Group and Tibisai Seya of The World. We're talking about the latest Latinx news you may have missed. All right. How about Ada Limon, first Chicana poet to be named U.S. Poet Laureate? Um, This is pretty exciting. And um, let's listen to her read a poem called Good Story from her book, The Hurting Kind, for Oprah Daly. Some days, dishes piled in the sink, books littering the coffee table, are harder than others. Today, my head is packed with cockroaches, dizziness and everywhere it hurts, venom in the jaw, behind the eyes, between the blades, Still, the dog is snoring on my right, the cat on my left. Um, She's been hosting the poetry podcast called uh, The Slowdown. Um, They're now looking for a new host because she'll have new duties. As (laughs) She's like a poet laureate. (laughs) uh, I'm out of here. (laughs) Yes. uh, So this is is pretty exciting. And... um, if the role is is a public one, so she has to be out there and doing so people will get a chance to see her and know her and she'll get a chance to influence poetry. Excited? Everybody? Yeah. Super excited. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, the first Chicana that in twenty twenty two to me, um and Latino USA, the show that um is part of Futuro Media, had a great interview with um with her earlier this year. Uh but I'm super excited. I, I think this is exactly what we need to see more of this coming out of the United States, right? This is just the beginning, right, Tibisai? I mean, this is this is only helps. Yeah, helps exactly. Us. I think this is an exciting time for uh, people of color, artists of color. Um, and what is huge about this is uh, that, you know, a Latina girl that sees her and gets inspired and says, you know, I, this is cool. I want to do it, and I can. That's wonderful. All right, we're wrapping up with 
The trailer just dropped for Wakanda Forever. That's the new Black Panther. It's coming in November. And much to the surprise of many, there is another thread in the in the casting and also in the storytelling that has to do with Mesoamerican influences. Now, the actor Tenoch Huerta speaks about joining the cast of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, after the trailer premiere at San Diego Comic-Con. To be here, it's an honor to, to, to be part of this world. It's an inspiration. I never imagined to be involved in this kind of movies, in this specific uh, franchise. Uh, now I'm here. It's like, you know, these people, they open so many doors. And thanks to them, we can cross. All right. What's the cultural piece that he'll be his character will be highlighting in Wakanda forever. I think it's a comic book hero based on Mesoamerican that came out. It's this this obscure character. I'm not a comic book nerd, but I do love Black Panther. And I will say kudos to Black Panther, which to me is one of the biggest global cultural pop, you know, transformational franchises out there, even though... Um, we lost Chadwick Boseman, um, who I loved in the in the first movie. But the fact that you're seeing opportunities for this Mesoamerican representation, um, and it's and it's Black Panther that decides to do this. Yeah. Not white Hollywood, right? And and it's not just it's not just uh that the Mesoamerican character, it's you know, Lupita Nyongo, who's you know, uh, uh, who was born in Mexico black woman and there's other characters and i'm like yes black and brown allyship thank you black panther like thank you you didn't have to do this but you did because yeah. you saw that this is you know they're smart like the the creators of black panthers go like hmm, i wonder who's going to see our movies and you look at the numbers and it's like oh there's also latinos that go see black panther and i just thought it was really really smart of them and it's inclusive and Yay. And I'm going to I'm running to see the movie when it comes out. I love the first one. Me, too. So he's he, uh, Namor is his character and it's Namor, a water dwelling yes. mutant with the power of flight and superhuman strength. Uh, the name means uh, avenging son in his mother's native Atlantean. So apparently he's both Atlantean and Mesoamerican. And there's a whole storyline that we have to wait and see. All right, Tibise, what what do you say? I agree. I, I, I don't have uh, much to add. I think Marvel, you know, sees the need to represent um, more, you know, th these cultures to, you know, attract more people as well. I think it's a smart move um, and it's happening at all levels. So I, I think it's great. You know, it's we learn a lot of history when when done right um, yeah. in some of these um, ventures. So, Ryan Coogler, scriptwriter, is all Ryan Coogler is a director. Wow, I am really interested because, as you said, they found him, um, they put him right in the middle of it, and now there is conversation that he, he now becomes uh, because of his central role in this new movie. Um, possibly one of the Avengers. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, but this is smart. It's smart. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's let's invest in 
let's realize that black and brown moviegoers are are saving Hollywood. So let's. This is Black Panther is iconic. I'm so proud of it. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. I'd like to end on a positive note, and thank you both. Thanks, Callie. <laughs> Thanks, Callie. Julio Ricardo Varela is president of Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, founder of Latino Rebels, and an MSNBC opinion columnist. Tibisai Seya is a public radio reporter at GBH and PRX's The World. Coming up, love them or hate them, Necco wafers, those thin, sweet discs of eight flavors, are an iconic candy, particularly here in New England. But when the local company recently shuttered its factory doors, candy lovers were shocked. What's Necco's legacy? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 